Welcome to Lynn Cullen Live. Talk radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Hey, and uh, welcome to you. Uh, it's February 6th. Do I sound like I'm talking in a echo chamber? <clears throat> Is that because of this room? If you, I know this things, we are in a closet. Um, while uh, the usual room we're in is um, <clears throat> is the uh, conference room, and it's uh, there's a new conference table being assembled, which is why you might hear drills on occasion. Um, so Amy and I have done the best we can, <laughs> but it feels a little odd here. It might look a little strange to you, too. I feel a little out of sorts. At any rate, <clears throat> one thing I've learned is just roll with the punches. What the hell else you're going to do? Um, all right, so, you know, I read a... <laughs> I need to start on brighter notes, but I, I've the thing that most... Um, touched me uh, today when I was not able to sleep again as usual and um, up late, sort of up late, up early. Um, I'm, I am sleep deprived and I am like so many other Americans and what touched me was a letter uh, to the editor of the New York Times, uh, written by uh, an old man. I can't remember how old he was, but he was in his 80s. And he's, he echoed what my mother in her 90s, nearing 100, um, says, that uh, they who lived through... <coughs> such horrific times in American history. My mother, more than, more than he, since she got uh, World War II and uh, the Depression, um, but, but all of it. And uh, he, noting other times when he feared <coughs> for our country and whether its institutions would hold uh, Vietnam, Watergate, on and on, and he said that he has never felt so frightened, dispirited, hopeless. And I guess what touched me about it is how sad it is that people who've lived their entire lives as proud Americans, long lives as proud Americans, um, near their end, uh, seeing that country that they loved, fought for, <clears throat> pledged allegiance to, become in part unrecognizable to them. And I find that so sad, um, even narrowing that down further, and I've said this before, that the few Holocaust survivors that are left, that they had to live long enough to see <clears throat> the huge uh, rise in anti-Semitism and all the old tropes starting up again all over the world. It's as if uh, humans' uh, collective memory uh can't even make it through um, an entire generation's lifespan before we start all over again, <laughs> making the same mistakes. God almighty. So anyway, it's hard to um, feel upbeat. And I forget where I read it. Again, either it was either the Washington Post, the New York Times, or the Wall Street Journal this morning, there was a piece written about the exhaustion uh, being felt by those of us who find uh, 
this country right now frighteningly unrecognizable. And I, I should say our country men um, <clears throat> unrecognizable and frightening. And it focused on here. It was set, uh, the story, the reporter did the reporting from southwestern Pennsylvania. And the story started with a woman who lives somewhere in Connor Lamb's district and who is one of the women who went after Trump's election, who went knocking on doors, got politically active in ways she had never done, and uh, pulled off, if you'll recall, a, a rather stunning flipping of a congressional seat uh, in a district that had overwhelmingly voted for Donald Trump and how empowered she had felt. What was that? Two years ago? Two and a half years ago? And it obviously uh, now she is no longer knocking on doors. She is sitting like I do most days <laughs> staring into the void exhausted thinking that you know, she needs to take a break, knowing that she has to go back into the fray. Uh, the article was about how Democrats, the resistance, as it were, are so exhausted right now that, um, and knowing we have this huge fight ahead of us, and needing to tend to ourself, that woman, uh, says she's taking a few months off. She's not coming back into the fray until the summer. And they talk to other people. I didn't read the whole article. It was like, you know, I don't need to read this article. I'm living this article. Um, but just so you know, you know, you are not alone in this feeling um, of despair and depression that we are feeling. Um, so, I don't know what else to say. We have a caller. Let us go to the phones. Caller, hello. Hey, Lynn Colin. Uh, this is Michael from Polish Show, and there's something that I have to get out of my head that regards our most uh, recent recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom, a Mr. Rush Limbaugh? Uh, yeah. Okay, when I was a kid, just a child, just a young boy, cheeks a tan, um, after eating dinner and doing my schoolwork, there was a guy on the radio on KQV AM. Right. KQV AM at that time was a rock format station. And this guy's name was Jeff Christie. Right. And I would religiously listen every day, six to ten. He did his four-hour shift. I thought this guy was incredibly talented, funny. He was like the epitome of your fast-talking AM disc jockey. Hey, now we're going to play the Rolling Stones, and I'm going to put on my padded bra. I found him hilarious. I looked up to him. And I'm not sure what happened. I think KQV changed formats or he just went away or something. But then in the late 80s, on your flagship station, when WTAE Talk was in its prime with you and uh, Uncle Dougie and everybody, in the late 80s, they started airing this syndicated show on the weekends during off times, you know, weekends, Sundays, and Saturdays, called Rush Limbaugh. And I thought, I know that voice. I recognize that voice. And I, we didn't have the Internet then, but I was always, you know, into media, and I would even read, you know, radio trade magazines. So somehow I came across this article in this radio trade magazine that, yes, in fact, this man, this character named Rush Limbaugh, was, in fact, 
the same Jeff Christie that was on KQV in Pittsburgh. And so I would listen to his show on the weekends, and he was still funny, and I still enjoyed listening to him. But then it got dark. He got meaner and meaner and more unhinged. And apparently this was the time when he was just uh, taking handfuls of opioids. Vicodin, I think, was his drug of choice. And this was very public. He was arrested for doctor shopping and arrested for trying to take suitcases of, of Vicodin on airplane flights to his private islands and stuff with his uh, various women that he did. But, and, and also very ironic, because of his opioid addiction, he lost his hearing, completely lost his hearing. But since rich people, since they can do things like this, they uh, were able to put some sort of implants on either side of his head or in his brain, which you can still see. If yeah, you, you can watch see them on right. YouTube now. Yeah. yeah, you can see them. They're like, yeah, two big silver dollars on the side of his head, which I guess made him hear again, which I always thought was so funny. I'm like, why does he need to hear anybody? Because he only takes fake calls that agree with him or fake calls that disagree with him. And he just talks over them. He doesn't really need to hear. But so now... Uh, yeah, he's like, they made him into like the $6 million man, although it would be the $6 billion man now. So now, where are we now? He has stage four cancer, and he is the recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And I predict that he's going to beat this cancer the same way that these evil billionaires always, Dick Cheney has actually no heart. He's like a $6 billion man. He has no heart. He's just a mechanical man. I predict Russia's going to beat the uh, cancer and still go on to be a cancer on our society. Much like your buddy Roger Ailes, I blame him for destroying and debasing AM talk radio for, for, all, for all of us, you know? Yep. I'm sorry about that rant. I didn't even give you a chance to breathe. <laughs> hey, l listen, I could have done the rant myself, but not in such a personal manner as as you did. Um, uh, it was a good rant. And, uh, yeah, uh, Rush Limbaugh has done uh, much damage to our uh, our political discourse. Our, I, he destroyed AM radio. I mean, it, that's why I'm not mm -hmm. on. That's not. I'm not on the radio anymore, uh, because he was so successful. He begot all these Rush Limbaugh clones, and AM radio decided that this was a winning formula, and it didn't include yep. people who had a different uh, style and politics. And so there you mm -hmm. have it. I mean, uh, a very consequential human. And uh, I also know that when you said you, you feared he'll beat this cancer, um, that you, uh, you were going to go to Dick Cheney. He's still alive. Can you believe it? Well, when you have no heart. How I, is Mitch McConnell alive? How is Donald Trump alive? I don't know. <laughs> I have friends who have died uh, much younger and... Uh, that's another weird thing about this whole Rush Limbaugh story, that you have someone that's so talented, so talented, and decided to use their talent for evil instead of good. Bad people. That's, I mean, my takeaway, my sad takeaway is my loss of innocence in this period of now seeing uh, how many just bad people there are and a lot of them rise to levels of extraordinary power and people fall for them i i just i don't know i i really have been a pollyanna uh, uh thinking that people are mostly good <laughs> i always thought so too i try to believe people are good but there is so much evil and i just don't understand yeah. why and if there, I don't know what my religious beliefs really are. I'm pretty much agnostic, but I do do in the part of deepest heart of my heart hope that there is some comeuppance for them in Me an too. afterlife. Me you too. know, even if they're you know reincarnated as a, a roach or something, I don't know. But you are know, they ever I, I pay for their crimes. No, no, and I um, no, <laughs> I I I just um. Yeah, I don't believe that there'll be a comeuppance uh, after death. 
Um, but oh, I, really? Yeah, but I sure wish there were. I often, oh. I have often fantasized about these, you know, people, <laughs> these like Christian ministers meeting Jesus. <laughs> I mean, I've yeah. always, you know, I've just often thought about that, but I don't think that there is a a comeuppance. I hope I'm wrong. I hope I'm wrong. But Jesus would say, "Look what you have done in my name. In my name, you did this. So now I'm gonna, I don't know, make you listen to uh, 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 something horrible. I don't know. You know, um, every once in a while, someone who is near death, who has done a lot of bad stuff." has, you know, a, mm-hmm. a, a comes to grips with the damage they've done mm-hmm. and uh, repents um, of it. And mm-hmm. uh, such a, I'm, a more famous one is the Republican operative Lee Atwater, um, yes. who died young um, and, and mm-hmm. said before his death how much he'd re- regretted um, the poison he had injected into the country's politics, and of course, mm-hmm. he was a Republican too, right? I mean, I, Republicans do seem to to own this more than uh, more than Democrats. I'm, I I want to say not that there aren't horrible Democrats, but good God Almighty, you know when we talk well, about. Also, uh, I, I was just thinking though the other the other you know the, trying to talk about. You know, Watergate. This makes Watergate. And what was Watergate? It was again a Republican president cheating. Mm-hmm. The only Democrat who got uh, impeached, Bill Clinton, he wasn't. Well, he was cheating. He was cheating on his wife, but he wasn't cheating in and uh, on the in the electoral process. Um, God. I don't. That was a personal matter that had nothing to do nothing with to our do with country us. and the way our country right. was wrong. That was between him and Hillary, and they worked it out. It had nothing to do with Congress. It was ridiculous. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, God, nice I to hear from okay, you. Before I let what? you go, um, you were talking about people repenting. You always do read also about these mafia people to have their come-to-Jesus moment when they're on their deathbed and they decide to give, like, uh, millions of dollars to the church or something, thinking that's going to save them. I don't know. I, I'm, I'm not as uh, despondent as you. I think that somewhere, somehow out there, their souls are going to pay something. I, I, I hope. But anyway, maybe I'm more optimistic than you. I'm optimistic about people suffering. Oh boy, I better go. <laughs> hey, you know, I'm so I'm you're more optimistic. I am less optimistic than a guy who has lived his life as the lead singer of a band called The Cynics. Oh, well. <laughs> I am less optimistic than the lead cynic. <laughs> well, it's a, it's the name of a band, but uh, yeah. <laughs> it's the name of a band. All right, Lynn, I love you so much. Love you too, love and you thank too. you, thank you for the call. Bye. Oh dear, dear, dear. Okay, so let me get to um, Mitt Romney, and um, I want to do uh, say an appreciation for what he did. You know, I I'd been meaning to talk about him in the last month or two because I had read somewhere something about the fact that when he is out in living his life, when he's let's say on an airplane, when he's in a grocery store, uh when he's home in um you know in Utah he apparently has been on the receiving end of a lot of ugliness from Republicans who uh, were furious about his criticism of, of their dear leader. And whatever it was I wrote, I read, made me realize how much courage, in fact, 
it takes to go against your tribe as he did yesterday. Because we live in our tribes. We socialize in our tribes. Our friends come from our tribes. Our family is in our tribe. And so to publicly break from your tribe, especially uh, a tribe that believes in retribution, expulsion, shaming, all the kinds of stuff, turning on, yeah, anyone who dare do it, uh, does take courage because you lose everything around you that had always been there. And I'd been meaning to talk about that in terms of, you know, my sense of why don't these Republican senators have the courage to do the right thing instead of looking after their own interests. And I still, I, I think it's just harder than, obviously it's harder <laughs> than we realize. Who was it during the um, impeachment arguments? It might have been the orator, Adam Schiff, who brought up that Robert Kennedy, I think, had said that moral courage is rarer and more difficult than courage on the battlefield. And moral courage is what it would take for a Republican senator to go beyond, I found it inappropriate. And there was no evidence of it. No evidence except by this one man. And make no mistake, despite all the hollering that went on when it was also said in those impeachment hearings that uh, the White House had put out the warning that any senator who didn't stick with the tribe would have their heads on a pike. Mitt Romney's head, they're going for his head now. This is a guy who I believe has five more years on his Senate uh, tenure in this four or five, um, meaning he has to spend all his time with his caucus, that would be the Republicans, who now hate him. Hate him for a number of things. Hate him because he broke with them. He kept the dear leader from having the talking point that they were all going for. This whole thing was to go for partisan witch hunt. And you can't claim that if one of your own join the hunt. Not just one of your own. The guy who the tribe chose just what? How many years ago? Uh, Probably 12. Um, like eight years ago. To be the standard bearer of the party. Oh, he's not just any senator. And he'll be hated by those other senators he has to be with because he shamed them somewhere. Most of them, I think, probably not, I'm probably being naive again, have to feel shamed by him. So I... I want to credit Mitt Romney for that and and smaller little tips of the hat to uh, two Democratic senators, uh, Doug Jones, who 
by voting for conviction uh, ensured he will lose his Senate seat. And uh, Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who I feared was going to be a moral coward, um, and hung in there, um, a Democratic senator in, a, in one of the reddest states in the country who well may pay um, as well. And so I, I also want to say something because I, if I hear it one more time, I'm going to lose my mind. Every reporter talking about Susan Collins pre prefaces Senator Susan Collins with moderate, the word moderate. What the hell are they talking about? What, what makes her a moderate? That she's supposedly pro-life? I mean, pro-choice? That she had her doubts about Kavanaugh? She has doubts a lot of times, but she always falls in line. And it was Susan Collins who said probably the most absurd thing in explaining why she uh, would vote to acquit uh, Donald Trump. She said, let me get this right, she hopes he's learned from this. What nonsense. He doesn't learn from anything. And if he learned anything from it, he learned that he can get away with murder, as he told us all before he became the president. Mitt Romney uh, forever changed his obituary. <laughs> this will be, he will go down in history, despite all the stuff that he, you know, the wiggly waggling uh, flim flammery that he did engage in as a politician in the past. He's here, then he's over there. The fact of the matter is, is he nailed his place in history as a man of courage by that one vote. And I haven't heard any of the interviews he's given, but I understand that he's fearful, not for himself, he's fearful for his family. Because all those Romneys, and God knows there's a lot of them, have to live again within this social realm that is as Republican as it gets, he was their nominee for president. So don't poo-poo the courage it took for him to do what he did. He, by doing it, became a pariah in his own party, a pariah in his workplace, a pariah to, I'm sure, many of his friends and even family, most famously, I suppose, his niece who heads the Republican National Committee. It's not easy to do that, obviously. And I, I think the one line that he said that touched me because I, it was, it's true and you wonder why he was the only one to get to this point. He said that he had to do what he did because if he didn't, let me get his words, If he voted to acquit this president, 
it, and here are his words, it would, I fear, expose my character to history's rebuke and the censure of my own conscience. So understand that all those other Republican senators are decided they were okay with history's rebuke, which is amazing, and apparently don't fear the censure of their own consciousnesses, consciences. But some on their deathbeds may or some in the dark hours of night when they're having trouble sleeping. Romney himself says he hasn't had a good night's sleep in a long, long time because this has been at him, at him, at him. That was an act of courage. Senator Sherrod Brown of Ohio, Democrat, um, wrote an op-ed in the Times today in which he says that uh, he flat out outs the Republican senators who he say tell him openly. I'll read his words again. In private, Brown, Senator Brown said, many of them agree that the president is unfit and reckless. They admit his lies and they acknowledge what he did was wrong. And they know that what he did was worse than anything Richard Nixon ever did and they know that more damning evidence is likely to come out. But he suggests that what motivates them, unlike, as Romney said, his own sense of values, character, his religion, what he learned from his religion of how a good man conducts himself. These other Republicans are more primitive because they are ruled by fear. And Republicans have always known the power of fear. It's how they get elected a lot. Creating fear of others, uh, creating scapegoats. But they themselves are prone to being manipulated by fear. And Donald Trump, the bully, uh, knows how to do that. Sherrod Brown quotes a reporter who, by the way, he, he also points out that the fix was so in that McConnell, you know, penned all the reporters up during this. Uh, never before had that happened. Reporters, as you know, because you always see when senators are walking around in the Capitol to and from, there are put upon by reporters sticking mics in their faces. That is as it should be. McConnell decreed to protect his Republican senators that reporters would be kept essentially in cages, penned. He also decreed that cameras would only be allowed to show that one shot that we saw ad nauseum, when obviously we could have seen the jurors, the senators, he didn't allow that because then we would see how many of them simply walked out. They weren't even there. And I assure you, those were the Republicans. 
Sherrod Brown quotes a journalist who unhappily watched all of this, who said, how in the world can these senators walk around here upright when they have no backbone? That is some of what I have to say. A little Tony writes, I remember when Rush was on KDKA for years. I don't, was he on KD? I don't know. I mean, I know he was KQV. Even though I was conservative in my younger days, I just couldn't listen to... Oh, you mean his? they syndicated his Rush Limbaugh show. Yes. Um, even though I was conservative in my younger days, I just couldn't listen to him and couldn't figure out how anyone could listen to his crap. I never liked syndicated radio. I only listened to local talk radio. Hosts like you and others. Yeah, but... We all got kicked off of talk radio. I haven't been on talk radio for, Jesus, over a decade, I think, right? I'm bad at dates, time, I don't know, I have a clue, but uh, it's been a long time. I, I, you know, just to keep myself uh, in one piece, I'm avoiding the regular Trump news. I know he was at the prayer breakfast. I inadvertently saw him grinning and holding up uh, newspapers that said he was acquitted. Um, Barbara has sent me something that Trump did say at the prayer breakfast this morning. He said, so many people have been hurt. We can't let that go on. He also said something about using faith to justify what's wrong. That was a hit at, uh, at Romney, obviously. He was his usual classless self, I'm sure. Dana says, since the GOP has changed since Trump took it over, can Mitt Romney change parties, become a Democrat? Um, I don't think he'd be comfortable doing that. This guy's been a Republican all his life. Um, no, I don't think that's a good fit for him. Or, I mean, he he, he is exiled. He is now a man wandering with his conscience intact um, in a, a rather barren desert. I, um, I think it's hard for us to understand uh, what he's done to his life in terms of how it's lived. Um, and the normal things one would expect. But try to imagine uh, essentially turning on, because that is how it is viewed by the Republicans, turning on the people who um, have been your support and around you uh, for forever. His father was a, um, a senator, Republican, was a governor of Michigan, Republican. He comes from a strong, old Republican family that simply doesn't, a kind of Republicans that, yeah, do not exist anymore. <sighs> to this news that uh, the absolutely incorrigibly loathsome uh, Bernie Madoff is uh, suffering from uh, kidney, uh, final stages of kidney disease. And so he, according to his lawyer, humbly asks the court for a modicum of compassion to let him out of prison. 
Whoa. What gall? Bernie Madoff asking for a modicum of compassion? This man who destroyed how many people's lives, took their savings, took their futures. <laughs> Jesus. The gall is unbelievable. And uh, let me let me acknowledge the passing of Kirk Douglas, a, 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 an actor I've never liked. I, I just there's something about it, him. Um, I think just physically that I, I, I I've never liked. Uh, but I saw him in one movie that blew my mind. And to me, it's without a doubt the greatest movie he ever made. And he's incredible in it. And it's one of the hardest movies I've ever watched. I don't think I could watch it again. It's one of those movies that just rips at your heart. It was called Paths of Glory. And um, it was a World War I movie. And it was remarkable. I think that was, wasn't that, uh, was that Stanley Kubrick's like first directing? I, just, I think Kubrick directed it. I don't know that for a fact. But uh, an extraordinary movie. but difficult. Um, and I, I also want to note um, that in his later years, and obviously he had a lot of later years, <laughs> more than most, because it was in his 80s that he and his wife started up uh, a, just an amazing amount of charitable work. And and I tip my hat to him uh, for the work that they did. Uh, they, he and his wife built 400 playgrounds in the Los Angeles area in communities that didn't have a lot of resources. Uh, they built a shelter for homeless women. They also worked a lot for the treatment of drug and alcohol addiction, uh, which took one of their sons. Um, they established a high school to uh, help troubled students uh, finish their education. I mean, they did just a, a, you know, a ton of good work. And also thinking of his good works, um, he single-handedly, I think, pretty much helped end the, the McCarthyite um, boycotting, blacklisting of uh, certain Hollywood people who were deemed to have, you know, whatever, consorted with uh, communists or socialists. Um, and on uh, one of the films that he was a, I guess it was Spartacus, I think, Spartacus, well, he was a uh, producer as well as a star. He, um, he insisted that one of the screenwriters, Dalton Trumbo, uh, be credited. Uh, Trumbo had continued to act, I mean to write, but um, under aliases because he was blacklisted. No studio would allow it. Uh, so Douglas did that as well. And uh, I mean, in many ways, I guess he, he I, this is when the American dream was uh, was something that was possible. I mean, he was born to these two illiterate, uh, poor as can be uh, immigrants, um, 
grew up in a little town in upstate New York. Um, there were mills in that town, but the town, but the mills would not hire Jews. And his parents were Jews. So his father um, well, did what a lot of Jewish immigrants did. He became a rag picker. That's what it was called, rag picking. He just collected anything that he could conceivably sell. Um, and uh, Kirk Douglas, writing his uh, one of his memoirs, wrote that even on Eagle Street, in the poorest section of town where all the families were struggling, the rag man was on the lowest rung of the ladder, and I was the rag man's son. The anti-Semitism that was rampant, which is why his father could not get a good job, uh, also meant that Kirk Douglas was beaten up a lot um, as a kid. But this kid who came from nothing hitchhiked up to a college, got a scholarship, and got a college education. And it was in college that he decided, and he worked his tail off to pay for it. Yeah, but colleges didn't cost that much then, but he had nothing. So hard work and uh, grit. And I love this little item that was in the New York Times obit. Um, when he got to this college, St. Lawrence University in Canton, New York, <clears throat> um, none of the fraternities wanted him, again, because he was a Jew. So he wasn't allowed to join. But the obvious power of his, I don't know, personality must have been, even though the frats wouldn't have him, he was elected president of the student body of that college as a junior. So I think that is a wonderful little tidbit. 103. I mean, he was in a helicopter crash when he was in his 80s that killed two people, and he walks away. I mean, there's some people that just seem indestructible, even good ones. Um, did you say I have a caller? Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Caller, go ahead, please. Hi, Lynn. It's Jeff. Hi, Jeff. Um, sorry. Hi, hi, Lynn. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm going to go back because I, uh, ended up getting in like 10 minutes late on your show and had to uh, rewound to the beginning. Okay. But a couple of things, uh, you know, you were talking about the Sherrod Brown thing. And before that, I just want to say, I always love hearing from Michael from Polish Hill and, Michael and I are acquaintances going back to the 80s, early 80s, before he was even in the cynics. So ah. I don't know if he would remember me, but he's, he was always a great guy just to you know, yeah. hang out with. Um, as for the Republicans being afraid, these Republican senators secretly being afraid of Trump, you know what? I don't, I don't even think it's the political consequences. They're there because of the you know, Republican base nowadays. But honestly, I think that some of these Republicans are afraid that Trump has the dirt on him and he will expose them in some kind of sexual thing or some kind of misdeed that they've done. And that only goes back to, you know, Trump's association with Roy Cohn and his ability to do things like that and hold things. And I think that's part of their fear. What do you think of that? Well, it could be. I mean, I also think... Some people think that it's the Russians who have things on, like, Lindsey Graham and others. You know, that, that you know, we, it, I, I do think the Russians have something on uh, Trump. There's Trump. no doubt about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I'll, I'll never forget the expression on his face that when he was in Helsinki with uh, Putin. God. Isn't, I mean, that, I mean it was that, just, that picture right there tells a thousand, you know, is worth a thousand words. That was, that, uh, that was the most unbelievable, I mean, if... if, if presidential moments will live in uh, you know historic infamy it is that yes 
that joint appearance with Putin where he sided with Putin over his own uh, intelligence agencies. Unbelievable. Yeah. And real quick, i got to say, you know, there's so much focus put on uh, the presidency and this election, and obviously it's very important. But you know what? The Senate, man, we got to get that Senate back. Yeah. Because yeah. it's all about that, you know, and uh-huh. we don't pay enough attention to that. And part of that is the gerrymandering that's been going on for the last 20, 30 years uh, by the Republicans. And uh, last but not least, because I came in when I called, you were talking about Kirk Douglas. What a guy. Yeah, his, <laughs> his life story is really something. Yeah. I'm not sure if you saw his son, Michael. No. Endorsing Bloomberg. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, he's endorsing Bloomberg. And, and guess who else is endorsing Bloomberg? A, a self-proclaimed radical socialist Who? who's got all kind of money, John Mellencamp. Huh? So you well, will soon, you will soon soon be seeing Bloomberg commercials with John Mellencamp in it. <laughs> and uh, <coughs> well, Mellencamp you know, is you know, uh, Mellencamp says he's going with Bloomberg because he feels that he is the only candidate out there who is actually directly confronting Trump. I don't know if that's true or not, you know, because I think – but, I mean, like, Bloomberg is really – I mean, that's the basis of his campaign is going directly at Trump. Yeah. I don't think he stands a snowball's chance in hell against Trump I, for I, reasons you have stated yeah. previously, but, uh, you know. Oh, God, I don't know. Hello? I, yeah, I'm here. I'm, I'm just, you know, who do you think is the – who? you know, we Democrats are just beside ourselves. We can't figure out who is the person. Who can take him down? You know, personally, I think that Elizabeth Warren has it in her. Now, uh, I think she's a fighter, and I generally like her uh, positions on things. Um, the only thing is, this is a society, this is a racist, misogynistic, uh, sexist society that, you know, I guess part of it wants to go back to the 1950s and think that Elizabeth Warren should have an apron on. But, uh, that's who I like. And I think that, you know, put it this way. If Elizabeth Warren was running against Trump and Trump did that thing that he did to Hillary Clinton where he walked up behind her kind of like intimidating during <laughs> that debate. Yeah. She'd I don't take think him Elizabeth on. Warren yeah. would play that game. Well, you know. I think she'd turn around and look him directly in the face. Yeah. You know, and I think Hillary, Hillary, done, Hillary you know, was at a. a bully. Yeah, you know? but Hillary was at a disadvantage because no woman had ever done what she was trying to do. And like Barack Obama, no black person had ever done what he... And it's like you're penned in. You don't want to appear to, for the woman, too aggressive, taking on Trump. You don't want to, uh, for Obama, appear angry because white folks are scared of angry black men, apparently. Um, all, I just think, but now, yeah, the gloves are off. No, I... I you think Amy Klobuchar wouldn't take him on too? Um, the two. I think she would do a good job of it as well. Kamala yeah. Harris would take him on. There's not a woman that wouldn't turn and tell him to get back into his little cage and stop breathing down her neck. As as much as I like Joe Biden, just as a guy and yeah. his personality and everything, he's got to go. You know, one of my little things that's kind of annoying me about joe biden now is the stagecraft i don't know if you know how like when like uh players on football teams do a press conference they always have like a backdrop with like logos on it and yeah stuff. yeah well when biden does these things you know what his logo is what it's like a silhouette of those aviator sunglasses he's been wearing so it's like the shape of these aviator sunglasses. Huh. So it's supposed to make him look cool or young yeah, or something. Yeah, yeah. You know, it it just it just screams phoniness, and that's going to lose an election too, because people people feel that in their gut. Yeah. Um, you know, he is not obviously he, he is not the guy. Yeah. yeah. Oh dear. Whoever runs for the Dems, that's me. I'm, I know you're running out of time, so I'll let you go, but. uh 
I love you, and I listen every day, even though I don't call it. It's always good to hear your regular callers. I was glad to hear Sissy White Liberal last week. I know. Or earlier this week. I, I know. And, and my, you know who we're, we, Amy and I were just talking about? We're missing two regular callers, and that's Mike in D.C. and Clarence in Cannonsburg. I'd love to hear yeah, from you. Yeah, I haven't heard Clarence for a while. No, I'd like to, I always worry yeah, so. when I don't hear from people, so I would like to hear from both those guys. Okay. <laughs> Otherwise, yeah, I worry. God, so we know you're okay. Yeah, know. Okay, Lynn. Have a great weekend. Thank love you ya. so much. I love you too. Bye. 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 Wow. Yeah. You know, I, my my maternal instincts kick in, and I I need a call. I need a call. Are you okay? Um. Okay. So I think the um the the only thing I'm gonna trouble you with now is not a won't trouble you it's a silly little story and I just as soon end with a silly little story um there's a pizza joint um in in uh it's in the San Francisco area but it's you know it's like 35 miles from uh, Walnut Creek. I don't know if you know where Walnut Creek is. I don't. Anyway, it's it's in the somewhere around there. It's called Skipolinos. Oh, no, Skipolinis. Now, it's possible some of you have heard of it. Um, it's not necessarily because the pizza is, like, great. Maybe it is. I don't know, but that's not why it's famous. Um much like uh, Minio's Pizza here, people like pay to have uh, a Schipolini pizza shipped in dry ice, uh, you know, across the country to them. But again, it's not because of the taste. It's because Schipolini pizza, for some reason, has developed the reputation of inducing labor. So women who have had enough <laughs> and want to rid themselves of that child inside them who uh, have been trekking the Schipolinis for what they call their pre prego pizza. And it's decades that it's been going on uh, the guy who owns it was in high school um, like three decades ago uh, when his parents owned the, the restaurant. And uh, the story goes, a very, very pregnant women, woman walked in and begged him, Do you, can you make me a pizza that will make my baby come out? And this kid said, well, I'll give it a try. And what he did is he threw everything but the kitchen sink on this uh, pizza. He put salami, pepperoni, ham, olives, garlic, anything else. He just kept throwing it on. Um, the woman uh, ate the pizza and, like, went into labor. Um the Wall Street Journal reports on this today and said uh, that a woman named Joyce Ann Rodriguez had been lose, just going nuts trying to induce labor. She was doing all the things her mother told her to do. Drink warm milk, fresh pineapple, walk around the block, keep walking, walking, and nothing worked. And then someone said, have you tried Schipolini's? And so she had her husband drive her out there. It was 35 minutes from their house. She ordered the Prego pizza from Schipolini's. And uh, the next morning, her contractions uh, started. And uh, she delivered a healthy baby girl. Uh, the myth of the Schipolini pizza has grown and grown and it now has seven locations, <laughs> pregnant women <laughs> knocking the doors down. Um, uh, they now say that the, the hint is that you eat at least two slices, and then you take a walk, 
and then you eat just one more slice and that baby's as good as coming in the next 12 hours. Um, so just wanted to let you know, if you know anybody who's wants to have a baby, um, Schipolini's Pizza. So uh, that's it for this week. God knows what will happen next week. Um, take care of yourself. I'm not doing very well myself, but uh, take care of yourself. We've got to live to fight um, another day. We are this country's last hope. I'm not overstating the case. Thank you all, and um, have a great weekend, because mine starts Lynn Cullen Live, Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers. <laughs>